Good morning. Thanks for tuning in to Citizens Podcast. My name is Dave Ainsworth. I'm one of the pastors at Citizens. We normally just let our sermons play, but this week I forgot to hit record until about five minutes in, and so I thought I should explain myself. Uh, Churching on Zoom brings lots of extra buttons and steps and screens that distract preachers. Uh, You'd think I'd had it down by now, uh, what, four or five months in, but not this week. And so thanks for your patience and thanks for listening. The sermon today is on Romans 13. We've been talking about politics for the past seven weeks and what each stage of redemptive history teaches us about how to think about politics today. And no Christian understanding of government and politics would be complete without attention to Romans 13. It's a crucial passage. In Romans 13, we learn that all government, all authority, from the president down to your local zoning board, is instituted by God. Uh, You can vote. I can vote. We should vote. Uh, We should vote carefully and uh, with conviction. But it is God who decides Every government official around the world owes God for his or her position. And from that reality, we learn three things. All government is delegated by God and so deserves our respect. All government is accountable to God and so should be called to faithfulness. And last, all government is temporary. It's a stopgap until Jesus comes again and sets all things right. Uh, the, re- the recording picks up in this first point. I'll read Romans 13 for you, and then you can jump in. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Thanks for living. Thanks for listening, and here is the sermon. As God's appointed servant, they have the right to burden our lives and our conscience. Uh, They can tell you to wear a mask. Uh, They can keep our kids from going to school. They can tell our church that we can't gather in groups larger than 12. Uh, That is their God-given authority. And that means that to go against the governing authorities is, by extension, going against God. Uh, Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. In a year of political foment, this is a hard pill to swallow. 
especially as Americans who believe in a government by the people, for the people, through the people. And so we can sort of think that, that maybe we get an out from Romans 13, but we don't get an out from it. It applies to us directly. Um, and before we assume that we live in an exceptional time, um, let's consider the time that Paul was writing, right? Roman emperors and local governors were actively persecuting, actively martyring Christians, believing them to be dissidents. And yet Paul still pens Romans 13 to Roman Christians. Now, clearly Romans 13 doesn't mean you shouldn't be a Christian if being a Christian is illegal. Um, He's writing to Christians who are in some way uh, disobeying the authorities. But You know, we see in Acts, Peter famously says when instructed to stop preaching, he says, we must obey God rather than men. And so there is a time for civil disobedience, but that time is very rare. It's very rare. And if it doesn't apply to these Roman citizens, we have to ask ourselves, does it apply to us? Does it apply to me if it doesn't apply to them? Um, John Locke, you know, when he talks about uh, the right to revolution, he talks about revolution being an appeal to heaven, that if you're if you're going to go out on a limb and and leave uh, and disobey your authority, you're sort of appealing to God and his providence, whether you win or not, which is a, a, a rightful thing. And that's a humbling thing, a scary thing. If I'm going to if I'm going to disobey, if I'm going to go against Romans 13, I may be in the right, I may be in the wrong, and I have to, it's an appeal to heaven, appeal to the Holy Spirit and to the, to the conscience. But it's interesting that Paul wrote to these persecuted Christians and told them to still be subject to all governing authorities. And I think what Romans 13 is emphasizing is that generally speaking, government is for your good. It's for your good. Uh, And we should emphasize that, too. There is a lot wrong with government in America and California and San Francisco around the world. So much wrong. But because of common grace, there's more that's good and right. Uh, Speeding laws, parking tickets, taxes, housing laws, police officers. I may not agree with the specifics, but do any of them keep me from obeying God? That's the question that we should ask as Christians. Are any of these laws keeping me from being obedient to God? It's unlikely. I personally, I was trying to think, I've never been in a situation where I can say with Peter, we must obey God rather than men. Maybe I will soon, but but not yet. That hasn't been true of me yet. Um, 1 Peter 2 says, do not use your freedom in Christ as a cover for selfishness. Um, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. And so when other people are claiming that Christians are bad for society, hateful, bigoted, destructive of our country's greatest values, we prove them wrong by doing good. Not only obeying all government authority, but also by using the freedom that we have as Christians and as Americans, in our case, as American subjects, 
We use our freedom not as a cover-up for evil, not as an excuse for selfishness, but living as servants of God. And by doing that, you will silence the ignorance of foolish people. 1 Peter 3.13 asks us, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And before we jump, the next verse we'll talk about suffering unjustly. But before we jump to that situation, we have to ask this question first. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? What good works are you being kept from? Uh, People who complain that their freedom is being compromised by having to wear masks, for example. They turn some law, a small law, into a transcendent example of injustice. And if you're, but then if I step back and enter into that conversation as a Christian, if my only concern is being zealous for what is good, seeking God and his righteousness, who's going to harm me for that? Now, you may not be rewarded for it, right? No one's going to give you extra credit, right? Um, zeal for good might cost you more than you think is fair because of ways that laws are set up so that you're financially limited in ways that other people are. Maybe you tell the truth on your taxes in areas where other people don't. Uh, And so they enjoy the benefit of that. Um, I remember when Maggie and I applied for help with Shepherd's Birth, we were both graduate students and and didn't have any money and, and were having to pay hospital bills. And the social worker told Maggie in the interview process that it would be better if Maggie wasn't married and, and like that you could actually qualify for lots of resources if you weren't married. And that was sort of like such a weird thing to, to hear. But then you're just like, and, and that's not fun to hear that like, man, why, why is that? Why is the system set up in that way? That's hard, but that's not Peter's point, right? That's not here. Who is there to harm you for being zealous for what is good? Let's be honest with ourselves. In our country and our city, not many people will truly harm us, um, especially the government. We are free to do a lot of good if only we were more zealous. And so when we're frustrated with government, is it because the government is keeping me from obeying God? 1 Peter 3 is not naive, and so it continues. Um, It says, uh, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. And so there is a situation where a government can come down on you for righteousness. And in that case, there's a promise. You will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. There's a chance that you will suffer for righteousness sake, that because you did good, you suffer. And in that case, have no fear, nor be troubled. Because not only is all authority delegated by God, because, it's, because it is delegated, all authority is accountable to God. Uh, Romans 13 doesn't just sober us. It should sober those in authority. Uh, they are God's servant, which means they are accountable to God. Um, uh, Romans 13 Uh, which has a complicated history of being misused by people in power, it's not a blank check for rulers to do whatever they want. It's the law is not an adequate defense if the law itself is unjust. Uh, Trump's 
former Attorney General Jeff Sessions actually referenced Romans 13 in a press conference um, a few years back when defending the administration's policy of separating immigrant families at the border. Um, he said that these families should enter the country legally and then they wouldn't be punished. That might be true objectively, um, but it's not an excuse for unjust practices, for unmerciful practices. Uh, it's not an excuse, and the church is right to decry that injustice and to work for change, mostly for the sake of the oppressed, mostly for the sake of those families and those children who were separated and spent months away from their parents. Um, but also, actually, for the sake of the ruler, who is perhaps unwittingly storing up wrath for himself against um, because of the injustice. Um, that's the call of the prophet and the prophetic church. Think about prophets in the Old Testament. They're there defending the poor and the marginalized, but they're also calling people in power to repent and change because of coming judgment. They're warning them. Um, and so as a church, we are not only to, to protect the marginalized, we're also to serve the ruler and call them out when they are um, acting unjustly. Again, Romans 13 has this long history of convenient readings by people in power, but woe to the ruler who takes God's name in vain. Woe to the ruler who uses Romans 13 as an excuse for injustice. When we see someone in power acting unrighteously or whole nations acting unrighteously, Christians remember that all power is accountable to God. It's delegated. We're called to submit to it. But ultimately, that person and authority will be accountable to God, even secular power. Galatians 6 is clear. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Uh, to the politician claiming divine sanction from Romans 13, be wary. To the father or mother uh, claiming divine sanction. Uh, to the master, to the boss, to all in authority, to the citizen who thinks Romans 13 is an excuse not to care about injustice. God will not be mocked. It is not a blank check. As Christians, we remember Pharaoh, who believed he was chosen by God, not Yahweh. When uh, Moses asked to take the Israelites into the wilderness to go worship Yahweh, he said, who's Yahweh? But Pharaoh was somebody who thought he was appointed by God, and he was appointed by God. He was chosen by him. But the question is, why? Uh, Exodus says, Yahweh responds to Pharaoh, says, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And Yahweh did just that by drowning Pharaoh and his army in the sea, in the Red Sea. Uh, Trump is in power by God's appointment. Uh, maybe Biden will be next, maybe not. Who knows in 2020 what is happening? But whatever happens, as Christians, we believe that God puts people in authority. The thing is, we don't know why. It may not be for the reason we think. As Christians, we're reminded of the nation of Assyria, who Isaiah said was sent by God to discipline Israel 
ultimately for Israel's good in the exile. And in Isaiah 10, Assyria is called the rod of God's anger, executing justice against faithless Israel. But then God in the story turns around and judges Assyria. And you can sort of think, well, isn't that kind of unfair because they were just doing what God asked them to do. They were being used by God to discipline Israel. And in Isaiah, it says that God actually wasn't judging them for the action. He was judging them for their attitude. Uh, In verse 13, the Assyrian king says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? This is the heart of the Assyrian king and the heart of the Assyrian people as they come and do what God has given them power to do. And so to that, Yahweh says, I am not an idol, silly man. And he, he says, shall the axe boast over him who hews it or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? You are just my tool and you boast like you are the final authority. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors and under his glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. Man, it is It is a humbling thing to be an authority, delegated authority, accountable to God. Uh, We think of Pilate who crucified Jesus and he interrogates Jesus and he says, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? He says that to Jesus. And in this amazing scene, Jesus answers, he's bruised and beaten, stripped naked, a piece, just like a frail example of humanity, but he's unfazed by Pilate. And he says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. This is the way that God relates to authority. And this is the way that we bear witness to it. How we think of Roman emperors who martyred the earliest Christians. We think of people who captured land and people in the name of Christ. We think of churches who kept silent in the face of injustice for personal gain and protection, who misused and abused the scripture for their own good. And as Christians, we are sobered Guys, by that. Hush. <laughs> um, I agree. Uh, <laughs> uh, as Christians, we remember Proverbs eleven four: riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Be careful what you invest in. Uh, many of us are not rulers, but we are members of the ruling class. We are educated. We have uh, voting power, we have influence, we have privilege. And Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. And so the thing about Romans 13 is it really hits us both ways as Americans. It hits us both as subjects 
as people who are under authority. And then because of our system of governance, because of the freedom we have, because of the potential we have to advocate and to execute, uh, uh, execute power, it also speaks to us as those in authority. And so we are incredibly humbled and sobered by our present station, um, more so perhaps than people in Rome who were only subjects, were probably not even citizens. Earliest Christians were from the lowest ranks. They were slaves, they were foreigners, um, they were the poor. Uh, Matthew 6 leads us to the final thing we remember about politics to keep us from over-identifying and under-identifying with it. All authority is not only dedicated, delegated and accountable, all authority is temporary. It's temporary when we think about global human history. Uh, America is just 30, 300 years old. It'd be cool if it lasted longer, but it most certainly won't last forever. Uh, and so any commitment to America, any commitment to our nation needs to keep that in mind. Uh, human authority is a placeholder for God's coming final authority. It's temporary. It will be replaced. More importantly, it's temporary when we think about the history of souls. Hebrews 13, 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This is why we can't write off political engagement. We can't act like we're above it or apolitical or sort of uh, wash our hands from it um, in the way that Pilate did. Um, we can't do that because America won't last forever, but you will. Relative to eternity, your time in America is nil. You will spend infinitely more time in the future than you will in today. You will spend infinitely more time and everyone else will too. Everyone in the world is an infinite, it will live infinitely long. Orthodox Christianity teaches us that all human souls are eternal. We are created and so have a beginning, but we have no end. Biblical wisdom always keeps that front and center. Jesus says in John 12, 25, whoever loses his, loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In Luke 9, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Our eternity radically affects our engagement in politics, and not only our eternity, which is secure in Christ, but the eternity of every person we meet. It keeps us from over-identifying with it and under-identifying with it. We don't care too much. We don't care inappropriately, but we do care. We have to. Eternity requires it. Because while human power, institution, governments, they are all temporary, a mere breath, the people within them are not temporary. 
Every person on this call, every person on our street and in our city, every migrant worker, every president, every coworker, every child will last forever. They will all, we will all outlast the institutions we live under. And so it is vitally important that we spend our lives preparing ourselves and preparing others for that eternally long life. If you'll remember from our prayer series in June, eternity is why Paul instructs Timothy to pray for rulers and all those in authority. He says to pray for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Why? Because he desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's why governments exist. That's what the in-between time is for. That's why God didn't just jump from redemption to restoration. That's why when you finally saw the gospel and your eyes were opened and you saw the truth, he didn't immediately take you up into heaven like he took Enoch and like he took Elijah. No, he left you here. He left us here as the body of Christ. Human government Their primary purpose is to maintain peace so that people might come to know Jesus, so that Christians would share Christ, so that others would come to know Christ. This is what we read. We've read a couple times so far from Acts 17. Um, Paul is preaching to the Athenians and he says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So here you see Romans 13, God's sovereignty over nations. He gives them places to be and time periods to be in. Why does he do it? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That's the purpose of nations, is to move towards God, to feel their way toward him and find him. And as people who have found him and who have been found by him were to meet them in that place, were to go and pursue them, that's what the gospel cares about, that people would be saved. And so it makes sense that the Bible wouldn't concern itself so much with establishing perfect government today. If anything, that would distract us from this main purpose. Our concern is announcing the perfect government which is coming tomorrow, the heavenly city, the lasting city that is to come. The political message of the gospel is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the main message of the church. And like Jesus, we not only share that message in word, but also in deed. And so through our politics, through our social work, through our lives, through our love, we illustrate and model the kingdom. But that kingdom is what we're about. If a government fails to give room for mankind's search, if they try and stop the church from advancing the gospel, from doing good and sharing Christ, if government becomes a tool of Satan leading people to death, then we are right to stand up and disobey. 
But even then, the New Testament instructs us to do it with honor and respect. Even if a government abdicates its authority, I am not free to abdicate my responsibility to God to to be subject to the authorities that he's instituted. Um, We see this dynamic beautifully on display in peaceful protest movements, um, where people both disobey unjust laws while fastidiously obeying everything else and even using the little freedom they have to love others. And then when they're arrested for doing good, for being kind, for being full of the spirit, it does what the Bible says. It silences the ignorance of foolish men. The world clearly knows who's in the wrong and who's in the right. And it's on them to do what's right. When individuals are arrested for leaving water in the desert at the Mexican border, when individuals are killed for hiding Jews escaping the Holocaust, when the outer circle a few years back is ticketed for feeding the homeless in the park, you're respectful, you pay the ticket, you go to court, but you keep doing what God has called you to do because it's right. However, when protests lead to breaking just laws, stealing, for example, it's so tragic. You understand it, obviously, especially if someone's outside uh, the faith, you, you understand, and, but it's so tragic because it distracts from the real injustice that is being protested. First uh, Peter 2.20 says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? There's no credit for that. But if when you do good, and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is a good thing, for to this you have been called. Friends, we have been called to suffer for righteousness sake, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is the opportunity we have as Christians in the already not yet to attach our zeal, our hope, our confidence in the already, in what's already true, what's certainly true, the salvation that is real in Christ, and then to attach our hard work, our lament, our uh, activism to the not yet, wanting to accomplish those things um, that God would have us accomplish. If we will just set ourselves to obey Christ, to work as to the Lord and not for men, if we will commit ourselves to be zealous for doing good, man, that phrase convicts me so much. Am I zealous for doing good? Is that what is frustrating me about government and the state of government? Is it because of my zeal for doing good? Um, I want to be zealous for doing good, Um, so zealous that I suffer for the name of Christ. And then you leave the results to God, entrusting ourselves to God who judges justly, recognizing that all authority is delegated and is accountable. 
And even if that doesn't accomplish concrete change, we get something so much better than winning. We get to display to the world the beauty of the gospel of Christ, to suffer for others like Christ suffered for us. And it will accomplish something. The church father Tertullian famously said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, I don't want to be a martyr. I don't think it's right to seek out martyrdom, but I do want to be a seed. I want to be a seed of the church. And maybe that means I'll be asked to die physically. It will definitely mean that I have to die personally, right? I will have to give up my own temporary good for the eternal good of others and my eternal good. Um, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. I uh, shared uh, with Maggie a recent bit by Jerry Seinfeld complaining about the phrase, it is what it is, and I'd like to share it with you. I hope you can hear it. Hopefully the technology works, but uh, you can watch it for a sec. We like to give our thoughts, our comments, our opinions. Sometimes we run out of opinions. We make them up. It is what it is, is a very popular opinion statement. Nowadays, I'm sure some idiot said it to you today. You can't get through a day without somebody going, well, it is what it is. Why are you alive? <laughs> to just say air words that fill the room with meaningless sounds, I think he's making fun of us, friends, and our uh, demographic and culture. But it's a good question. Why are you alive? This series on the Christian story and politics gets at that question. The majority of America watches the news, sees what happens in Washington, sees what happens in cities, sees economic inequality, political injustice, racial inequality. They see complete brokenness throughout government. They see so much terrible things, and they just turn it off and say, it is what it is. And the Christians within that camp who have that response, they have an under-realized eschatology. They forget that God is active in politics and calls us to be active. They forget that temporary human government has to do with eternal human souls. And then there's this loud minority. It's definitely a minority, but they are very loud, and they're especially loud this year, who are frustrated and angry, asking American citizens, why are you alive? Why are you here? They're asking the church, why are you here? The Bible asks that question too, and it gives an answer, and it calls us to give an answer in public, out loud. After, you know, First Peter, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And what is our answer? What is our hope? 
1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 2 Corinthians 5, The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't regard politicians. We don't regard homeless. We don't regard neighbors. We don't regard nations. We don't regard political parties. Nothing according to the flesh because the gospel is true. I was thinking last night, what if we continue to say it is what it is, but with faith, with the is being the gospel, what is for us when we say that? Jesus is. Forgiveness is. Healing and peace and grace and adoption and hope and unity. Promise. That's what is for us in Christ. Can we say that with hope? It is what it is. Jesus died. He was buried and he rose from the grave never to die again. And that eternal life is available to all who attach themselves to Jesus. That's our politics. Freedom and joy in Christ, employed for the good of others that they might believe in God. Freedom and joy in Christ, employed for the good of others that they might believe in God. Why are you alive? Why are you free? Where is your hope? Let's pray.